episode contains several instances of foul language. Listener discretion advised. Matt Doherty, the 6'7 sophomore from East Meadow, New York. Leadership is learned. A starter on Coach Dean Smith's legendary 1982 Tar Heels National Championship team with Michael Jordan. Jordan comes down with a rebound. Clears it away to Doherty. Doherty going in against Floyd. For the layup, it's good. Leadership is earned. Head coach at the University of North Carolina and the University of Notre Dame. You notice Matt Doherty, he is up working every second of this ballgame. Leadership is taught. Public speaker, author, and executive coach. And leadership does not require a title. This is the Rebound Podcast with Coach Matt Doherty. Welcome to the Rebound Podcast. I'm Matt Doherty and I'll be your host. On this podcast, we discuss leadership and overcoming adversity in an open and raw kind of way. I became passionate about leadership in 2003 after I lost my job as the head coach at my alma mater, the University of North Carolina. I went on a leadership journey. Leadership is a skill that needs to be practiced on a continuous basis. With the start of March Madness, I decided there may be no better guest than former Clemson point guard and sneaker company rep than Merle Code. Merle Code played college basketball in the 90s at Clemson and got into the sneaker business. First as a rep for Nike, then Adidas. Merle had a great reputation as an evaluator of talent, a hard worker, and a relationship builder. His job was to uncover the best young talent in high school basketball and develop relationships. So they would join the Nike or Adidas family and play for a college program sponsored by these companies. You see, he got these young players to wear the shoes of his employer that would help sell shoes at the grassroots level. And if someone broke it big like LeBron or Kobe, it could mean millions of dollars for the sneaker company. As a college basketball coach, I needed to be close to guys like Merle. Because he could provide me with key intel that would help me make decisions in the recruiting process. If Merle liked me and thought I was a good fit for his player, he might influence the player my way. I needed Merle Coat. The sneaker companies needed Merle Coat. The high school AAU programs needed Merle Coat. Merle was in the middle of it, in the middle of the cesspool called college basketball. Merle, welcome to the Rebound Podcast. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Yeah, no, no, it's good to have you. Um, if you don't mind, I'd love to go through your timeline. Uh, I have you down as born to Judge Merle Code in Greenville, North Carolina. South. Oh, I'm sorry. Greenville, South Carolina. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. And your dad played uh, football, is that correct? Yes. At North Carolina A&T? Yes. And became a municipal judge, uh, the first African-American to serve in that position. Yes. And then you played at Clemson from 93 to 97? Yes. Played with the Nuggets for a little bit and then some other uh, professional leagues? Yes. And then after that, tell me what happened from that point on and how you got to Nike. Yeah, so I actually, um, my cousin, who I'm I'm very close to, his name is Ron Blassingame, had gone to college and one of his closest friends was a guy named Lynn Merritt. Um, And Lynn had come down to see Grant Hill um, he and a guy named Taderma Ussery. And Taderma oh, Ussery yeah. actually was at Nike at the time and ended up becoming um, an executive for the Dallas Mavericks. Long story short, we played Duke in the first round of the ACC tournament. Uh, well, actually, the second round because we were in the play-in game. And those guys were there to see Grant. I, I played in the game uh, as a freshman. You know, I didn't do anything spectacular. I just got some minutes. Uh, those guys ended up calling my cousin, Ron, and said, hey, man, your cousin really can't play. <laughs> you know, um, 
And so, yeah, he said, I've been telling you guys he could play for a long time. And that kind of sparked and started the relationship when I was in college. And so during the summer months, uh, I would go out to the Bay Area and work out with guys like Tim Hardaway and and uh, J.R. Ryder and and Jason Kidd and so and Richard Jefferson. And, you know, all of those, those guys, Richard was actually in high school at the time. Um, but I would go out west and, and work out with those guys that, and work their camps. And so it was kind of my start into the relationship building process with the Nike hierarchy. And so when I decided to hang them up after, you know, four knee operations and back killing me and everything else. And, you know, you know, Matt, as a player, how your body starts telling you it's time to time to stop. Yeah. Uh, you know, I kind of wanted to figure out kind of what was next for me. And I never really had any desire to coach, per se. I love teaching. I just didn't like the other things that came with coaching, you know, in terms of the the politics of the coaching decisions from a, from an AD or president perspective, being forced to recruit certain players because their moms and dads went to a school or giving them a scholarship because their mom and dad were big time donors. You know, I, I just didn't want to get in. I just didn't like that part of the business. Yep. And so I just said, you know what? It's not really something I love the game. I just didn't want to be a part of that. Well, little did I know jumping into the shoe business was. <laughs> <laughs> you, you got in it. You I got in it. I, unbeknownst to me at the time, I, I got in. Um, yeah. So I called everybody just to thank them, you know, along my journey. Everybody that had been a part of my process from Little League to to high school, to college, to professionally, I just called everybody kind of a roundabout way just to say, hey, thank you for taking this ride with me. It's been a wonderful ride. Any and everything you've done for me from, you know, my godfather, Johnny Jones, who was a... Johnny Jones at LSU? No, no, no. Johnny Jones was at South Carolina State in Florida A&M. He's a legendary high school coach in Alabama. Um, But he he was, his, his son is actually Orlando Jones, the famous actor. Okay, but Johnny. Johnny was is my godfather and spent numerous hours with me in the gym working on my ball handling skills and helping me understand the game. And so he's just one of those people that I just had to, you know, coach Aaron at Fort Union. Oh, All yeah. of those guys, may, may, may he rest in peace. Um, I just wanted to thank everyone along my journey. Um, and so I called Lynn to say, hey, man, I thank you and appreciate you allowing me to come to work those camps. It was a wonderful opportunity to see, you know, see what pros do during the offseason and how they work and getting a chance to play with those guys and, and really felt like I belonged. And um, he asked me, what was I going to do? And I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I, just, I don't yeah. know. And he said, well, have you ever thought about coming to work for Nike? And I said, no, because I really don't want to sell any shoes. Because in my naivete, right, I, I did not understand the business of shoes. I thought, you know, Nike just put some shoes in the store and everybody just went to buy I didn't understand the business around. Yeah, you, you were pretty naive, right? <laughs> we, extreme. We all were. We all were. <laughs> Extreme. So, so I said, no, thank you. I just, I don't want to sell any shoes, man. I appreciate it though. And he's saying, that's not kind of what I do. And he said, well, I tell you what, won't you come out, uh, meet me at the all American camp in Indianapolis. Let me show you kind of what we do. And if you think it's something that you might be interested in, um, let's do, let's, let's make a consulting arrangement for a year. And then if that works, uh, then we'll turn it into something full time. And if it doesn't, no hard feelings. You tried it. We tried it. It didn't work. And I was kind of like, well, why me? And he said, well, listen, I don't have a lot of people in, in this department who really know the game. I don't have guys who played the game or have relationships with coaches or right. players that you do. You played at a really high level. You know, these guys, they know you. They respect you because you were on the floor. You know, you just weren't some guy on a team. You played. Right. And so it, it would be a benefit to me. And again, it could help you kind of start your own career outside of uh, the, the court instead of playing. What year was this, Merle? This would have been 
0203, somewhere in there. Okay. So, yeah. So this is, this is a good uh, four or five years after you were done. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I bounced around the, 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 the CBA. I bounced around the G league. I bounced around Europe. I got bounced around playing and I still love to play. But again, my body was kind of telling me it was time for me to stop. Um, and so <clears throat> that, that, that led me down this path. And so I ended up doing the consulting gig as a rep for, you know, for that first year and really started learning, learning what they did. What did they do and how did they do it? Yeah. My introduction was uh, on the community side early. Um, There was a, there was a summer league uh, event that Nike ran across um, some of the major cities across the country. The generic term was pro-am, but we ended up kind of changing the name and calling it pro city. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were in major markets, Atlanta, New York, D.C., Minneapolis, Houston, uh, the Bay Area. I ended up having that responsibility in terms of ordering all of the product, shirts, T-shirts, I mean, shirts, uh, jerseys, socks, balls, you name it. I, I ordered everything and paid for it out of my Pro City budget. So I became kind of the overseer of this summer league. Gotcha. And it was a community give back because there was no fee and it gave kids a chance to to seek pro guys up close and personal who may not have had a chance or couldn't afford to, you know, pay for NBA tickets. Right. Uh, and so I thought it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to get these kids involved and give them firsthand access to some, some high profile guys. So right. we did all the ordering. We did the brochures. We struck a deal with, uh, I believe finish line. So we started, they started carrying, you know, in limited quantities, some, some pro steady product. We created shoes with the logos on it. So again, it became my my baby, right? So I end up kind of self proclaimed uh, director of Pro City. <laughs> um, so that was my introduction, and then the recruiting aspect of it was second piece. Um, so now, define recruiting when you say recruiting. recruiting. So, so really identifying <clears throat> identifying the players in the market because that I had moved from um, South Carolina to Chicago. They they needed they wanted me in the Midwest. Um, and so my region was everything in the Midwest. So I needed to know who the high profile players at the high school level were, who the high profile players were at the college level in the market, in, in the, that region mm-hmm. and who were our existing um, assets, guys that were already under Nike contract. When you say assets. Was that a term that Nike used? Not really. They Not would really. say in, okay. in, endorsers of the product. Okay. Just found that interesting that you use the term asset. Yeah, well, that's that's how I view it because that's yep. ultimately it, it is an asset. It's an asset. No, no. I get right? it, I get it. But I just but they were they were referred to internally as endorsers. Yeah. Um, so. And so, so I needed to know what guys were with competing companies um, whose contracts may be up or who weren't happy with their existing relationships. Being Adidas. Yes, being Adidas, really? being New Balance, being N One at the time, being the up and coming China companies, Li Ning and Anta. Uh, all of those companies were kind of in formulation. And so knowing who was doing what with who. And so it's, it's really an intel gathering job. Yep. yep. And, and so you want to know, for example, if, if, a, if a player had family issues, if mom and dad weren't together, um, who was actually making the decisions? Sure. Uh, if, if mom had a boyfriend, how involved was he? Um, if the kid's high school coach was, had already struck a deal with an agent. You know, all of those kinds of factors were part of the intel gathering process that I needed to be able to take back to um, the hierarchy at the time. Because at that time, again, I was just a rep. Yeah. As you were going through this process, did you as a player, 
was your recruitment fairly uh, traditional, like, you know, home visits, visits, um, you know, nothing under the table. It was it was pretty straight up, I'm assuming. Well, I'll, I'll say this. Everything. There's nothing traditional about anything in the space. Every, every your recruitment, your recruitment. No, but, but I'm, 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 I'm saying there's nothing traditional about mine or anybody else's that's recruiting because every family dynamic is different. Every situation from a recruiting standpoint is different with a particular kid and his family. So, no, there's no that's why the, the business is what it is. Uh, then I'm going to flat out ask you, did Clemson offer you money to go to Clemson? They did not. No, okay. I did have so, I did have I did have some schools that offered me money to transfer or to come out of high school. Okay. Uh, I did. My point is that's pretty traditional. You didn't get it. it, 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 it yes, absolutely. It, okay, yes, that's what I'm talking absolutely. about. But in terms of your first question about Nike, you have to, you have to you become Santa Claus. And uh, so, for those of who are listening who don't know, I've written a book called Black Market, and I kind of detail the 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 product as as kind of leverage in these relationships. So, Nike, Adidas, the other shoe companies. Um, become ingrained and an influential part of that family circle with this high profile player because I'm I'm the product man. I'm I'm Santa Claus, right? Mom needs some shoes and a sweatsuit, she's getting them. Again, I'm I'm gonna interrupt you from time to time. When did it hit you that, oh, this is different than my recruitment to Clemson? There's a lot more involved. Or did you know that when you were playing at Clemson? Did you know that well, yeah, I, I, I knew that because I had some high profile I had you know, I had the six pick in the draft on my on my college team. And so seeing, you know, I, I would go home with Sharon and knew his his family situation. Um, he didn't come from a wealthy background. He didn't come from a mediocre background. His family was struggling. His mom was struggling to take care of. Him. Right. And he had two cars, <laughs> right. you know, and two he always cars. he always had money and we took trips together and he always had gas money. I mean, it was evident that he was being taken care of from somewhere. Now, again, who that who that was and that wasn't any of my business and I never asked. We never discussed it. It wasn't important to me. Right. He was my roommate. He was my teammate. He was my friend. I just wanted to state to the audience, at what point did you know um, or feel that uh, recruiting to major colleges could entail some things that were considered illegal at that point by yeah, the yeah I, I I would say I knew it when when I was in high school I knew it existed and I knew it happened mm-hmm. um but I didn't see it again I didn't see it for myself until I got to college my freshman year there you go now fast forward uh, you're at Nike when did you feel either uh, pressured or obligated to offer things to players uh, well I, I would never say I felt pressure right i think when you get into these when you get into the job you realize that's the job and you do your job i know it wasn't um it was never somebody's pressuring me to do something um that i don't agree with i, I never I, I never felt like anybody said hey um if you don't do this because that was the job everybody in my department was sending product to kids families and parents and paying for hotel rooms uh for camps because the, the parents couldn't afford to come see their kids play and I right. never saw a problem with any of that. Right. Like if a parent and a family member want to see, come see their kid play and you're providing food and a hotel room, I, I don't really care what the rules are. There's right. nothing wrong with that. And, and so I, I and again, going back to college, um, I had teammates who had children. I had teammates whose parents never saw them play in four years because they couldn't afford to get there. They couldn't afford to stay if they got there. 
they mm-hmm. couldn't afford to eat if they got there. Right. So, so I actually had teammates whose family members would stay with my mom and dad to avoid hotel costs, and my mom and dad would feed them. Yep. And so, guys are out stealing food, and I mean, again, you see all kinds of stuff when guys are in need. But yep. but you're asking them to go make you millions of dollars because of these TV contracts and shoe deals and monies that are being paid all over the place, and the and the workforce is struggling. Right. And so. I, I again, I, to answer your question fairly, I never saw it as something, as some, some anything of an obligation or any kind of pressure. It's the right thing to do. So right I don't do in regardless to NCAA rules. It's the right thing to do by kids and their families when these kids are in need and their families are in need, and you're benefiting in in numbers that people can't even imagine. And you got you got families of people sleeping on floors with no furniture. And you want them to come play. Like, again, I, and I talk about this, Matt, and, you, and you'll, you'll resonate with this. When I was in school, we got one meal a day on Saturdays and one meal a day on Sundays. One. Now, I don't know how it was in Carolina, but we got one meal. And now through the week, you got three meals, Monday through Friday. But Saturdays, the cast were closed. So you had to figure out how to eat. Even though you got practice, you got to figure out how to eat outside of breakfast on Saturday and breakfast on Sunday. You're on your own. So now I just told you kids come from backgrounds where they don't have furniture. Now you ask them to figure out how to eat. And then you make it against the rules for somebody to give them $20 to go get a pizza. I get it. I want to establish a couple things and sure. then move forward. You and Nike knew that technically by providing families with gear, hotels, and food, technically made them a professional, which made them ineligible. Um, But but yet Nike was sponsoring these colleges and coaches. So you're kind of, I don't want to say in the middle, but maybe in the middle, you know, that they know that it's against the rules technically. Mm -hmm. uh, And yet they're doing it to get close to these players, to steer them, ideally towards these colleges that they sponsor. And yes. then long-term game was to get them if they were good enough to be pros. Is that? Well, yes, that is very accurate, uh, except for, and when I say long game, yes, you would, you would love to have an iconic player coming out of your, your ranks. But you got to realize there's the, the money flows from the high school level through the collegiate level. So, you know, if, if I sponsor North Carolina, uh, where you were a, a hell of a player as a shoe company and my logo is on your jerseys. Well, when you go buy those jerseys, we make money. Right. When right. you buy those shoes that, that you see the players on the floor wearing, right. we make money. That's why you see these $200 million relationships with these universities. Yep. Yep. Um, because it, again, it's, it's such a big business. So we make more, there'll be, there'll be more money made off of jersey sales, sock sales, shoe sales at the collegiate level. Gotcha. Okay. Then there will be from, from an individual NBA player. Okay, that's good. Because that, that clarifies it even for me. And I was in the business for 22 years, and <laughs> that makes sense. So that's the business model. Yeah. So fast forward, you left Nike. Why did you leave Nike after, I believe, 14 years? Well, not quite 14, but close. Uh, it was about, uh, I'm going to say 12 and a half, 13 years. It was... It was time to go. I had been I had been in in the role. I, I basically was on the NBA side of of the business 
uh, from 2000, let's say two to 2010. And in 2010, I was basically told if I didn't take this grassroots job, the next promotion that came my way, I would probably be passed up for. Mm. And so I was kind of in a bit of a quandary. Right. And so I was not really comfortable because I didn't I never wanted to jump into the grassroots space. I enjoyed the NBA side. Um, I had become very friendly with a lot of the NBA GMs and, and, and scouts and front office people. I knew the agents. I knew who was in, who was going, who was recruiting what kid out of college and who was going where. So I kind of had my, my information network established and I was pretty good at. What is the grassroots level? The grassroots level is anything considered amateur, um, truthfully. But in terms of, to be really specific, you're really talking about high school level down to mm-hmm. around 10 years old. From 10 to 17 is really con- considered grassroots. And why would you want that role? Well, because I know it's a cesspool and I I know um, all of the dealings that go on. And I knew there was a lot of power struggle uh, internally um, between who, who was really making the calls and bringing in organizations. And, and and so there's just, there's so many dynamics in that space. And I just, it was just something that never really interested me. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to jump into that. Talk more about what is the cesspool. So you'll have guys who, again, hierarchy at a shoe company who may not serve in the role. So let's just say you have a guy who's who's on the on title. He's the director of grassroots basketball. But the global director of basketball is saying, hey, you're going to bring in this organization and you're going to spend money in this particular space because we have a deal with this particular college or university and this is their recruiting base. Gotcha. So give me an example when you say bring in an organization. I know what you're talking about, but help the audience understand. Sure. So so during the spring and summer months, um, people typically refer to it as AAU basketball. And that's not actually the correct terminology. Um, AAU is the amateur or is is an athletic uh, uh, association that is a business entity unto itself. AAU is a standalone business, the generic term for spring and summer basketball. Well, the shoe companies have basically gone around AAU because they have something to offer in terms of product and have called their teams travel teams. Right. And so now what you have is you have competing shoe companies out recruiting uh, the best summer travel teams in respective markets, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and in each of the basketball centric states to really have the majority of the talent in a particular state on their sponsored travel team, if that makes sense. So Adidas is out recruiting guys for their sponsored travel teams. Puma is doing the same. N1 was doing the same at one point in time. Nike does the same. What does sponsorship look like? I'm an AAU, I'm a, I'm a travel team coach. Yeah. All right, uh, I've got good players. I'm getting access to good players. What does that sponsorship look like <laughs> for me and my program uh, team Darty. Yeah. So it, it, again, it depends on the market that you're in. Um, and it depends on the caliber of player because good player doesn't signify getting a higher end deal. Good players are guys that are going to deep, deep, high level D2 schools and low, low to mid major schools. Those are good players. Those wouldn't constitute a, a travel team deal from a Nike perspective. Right. Right. Um, guys who are going to your power five conferences, and who have chances to be NBA players constitute high level deals. Yep. Matt already has high high level high level players that are going to power going to ACC, SEC, Big Ten, and Pac twelve schools. Right? Then that deal will probably will constitute a cash influx of let's just say somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. 
that a, a year to to me to me to to the organization uh, which are which are nonprofits. Mm-hmm. That money is to be uh, disseminated amongst the number of teams you have because again, some of these teams have. 17s, 16s, 15s, down to eights, right? Eight-year-old teams. And so they have to make some budgetary decisions as to how they allocate those dollars and which kids are going, which age groups are going to pay for their for their summer travel uh, and which teams are going to use the sponsorship dollars. Also within that deal, there'll be product allocations. Right. And so that'll be a set number of uniforms, set numbers of socks, bags, balls, book bags, um, sweatsuits, hats, you know, in, in winter and cold places like Detroit and Chicago, they'll have winter coats in those deals, uh, gloves, you know, uh, things that Southern teams don't typically need. There'll be some of these guys will have, let's say, a, a 5,000 T-shirts in their deal because they run camps. So they'll take those deals, take those T-shirts, run their own camps and sell those T-shirts to make money. And so again, it's a it's a business. Yep. Um, and so those deals, um, and then what you have is you have a circuit that is created by those same shoe companies. If you're under contract, I'll have five to seven sponsored events that you are expected to play in. And so you and your team need to be physically present at these particular events. It is it is mandatory for you to attend these five events from March to July. Now, now I think people have. To- picture okay uh youth basketball and you know i could be just an average joe who's got a relationship with a guy who's going to be a hell of a player like say anthony davis out of chicago all of a sudden i'm putting talent some players around them you want anthony davis i've got anthony you then sponsor my team now that gives me tremendous leverage right yeah and so now i'm feeling pretty good about myself as i walk around the streets of Chicago and I try cool. to build a program and I'm getting 150 K plus product. And now I'm kind of like Santa Claus in the neighborhood. Well, now you are, you are Santa Claus because now what you do is you will take Anthony's parents, you know, cause he's the example. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll take his parents and make sure that they don't pay for flights or hotels throughout the entire spring and summer. That's right. Because if I'm with Nike, Adidas is trying to get to Anthony now that he's discovered. It, right. I'm not letting Anthony and his parents out of sight. No. And what you won't, what you won't do for them, somebody else will. That's right. And so what gives these, what gives the AAU guy or the high school coach even more leverage is now because you do have Anthony Davis and he's a high profile kid. Well, it comes agent. So the agent says, okay, AAU coach, Matt Darty, I tell you what, I'm going to give the family, you know, $250,000 and I'll put an extra $100,000 in the program. Wow. Um, here comes the financial guys. Listen, we want to sponsor the team. We'll give you guys an extra $100,000 um, if, if we can have access to, to Anthony and, and manage his money as a pro. And none of that, by the way, to the audience is illegal. Not, not to put money into an AU program. No, it's not. No, it's not, not illegal. And no. some of this could be at the direction of a college coach, it, right? A lot of it is at the direction because they have a step. Because what, what people fail to realize is each coach has an agent. That's right. And so there's relationships established where... If a particular college coach has a high profile player, say an Anthony Davis, and they have an agent and their agent says, hey, I'd love to get a chance to to knock this to, to represent this kid. Then what happens sometimes and I'm not saying all the time, but what happens is there's influence placed on the kid and, and, and the relationship is kind of handed over. And what what will the, the relationship with the, the agent and coach coach said, well, listen, I'm giving you high profile players. I'm supposed to pay you. 
you know, four to seven to 10% of my, uh, my contract, right. I'm not paying that because right. I'm giving you access to high profile players. So it's a revolving door of business. It's just, and <laughs> all right, this is, that's good. I wanted to lay the landscape for the fan who's getting ready, who, who's been watching March Madness and thinking that those kids on the court were just recruited because yeah. you called the high school coach, you yeah, met absolutely. Them, they took a visit, the kid committed, and everyone's happy. Yeah, no, absolutely. The crap that goes on behind the scenes, and you use <laughs> pool, I use it as well. Yes. Uh, it, it is a cesspool to get the kids from their high school playground travel teams to the court for an NCAA tournament game, the stuff that goes on from point A to Z, you can write a book about, which you didn't. Tell us about that book again. Just give us the title and how they can buy it. Yeah. The name of the book is Black Market. Um, It's available um, on all of your major outlets at Barnes & Noble or Amazon or Apple. Um, There's an audio book. There's a hardback and there's a paperback edition that's coming out next month. And the book really was cathartic for me in in a sense of being able to talk about the truth. Because what I found about my situation is the truth doesn't matter. And so I wanted to put myself in a situation where I could speak the truth about how this business actually works and then how, you know, the justice system isn't really just at all. The other other point I want to make, Matt, about the the NCAA and the cesspool, and and it kind of gets into some of the book presses, but we talk about the coaches. And so I'm getting ready to go there. Let's fast forward to Louisville. You're now at Adidas. You well, let, me, let, me back, let me back up, though, because I, I, I want to make this point before you get into Louisville. What I was going to say was the majority of coaches at the collegiate level at your power five schools are white. There are a number of black assistant coaches um, at power five institutions. These black coaches jobs, well, you and I talk about the cesspool, but understand these guys' livelihoods are associated and attached to their ability to go recruit these black kids. And so what happens more times than not is these black assistant coaches are, are have to go get black kids and black talent um, to fill out their roster so that they can keep their jobs and be useful. That's the name of the game from a coaching perspective. That's right. that's, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I listen, when I was coaching, um, it went from, you know, you could have some all white staffs to all of a sudden, I hated the term. Uh, you, who's your black guy? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Who's your black yep. guy on staff? Yeah. What, what do you mean? Who's my black guy? Yeah. And so I purposely, when I became a head coach, I hired two African-Americans because sure. I didn't want, you know, and one was my ops guy. Right. David Kaysen. And, uh-huh. and I'm like, I hired David because he's good. Not because he's a black guy who can get players. Matter of fact, he wasn't allowed to recruit at that point. So right. I, I, I understand. Um, yeah. You you go back to Adidas now after some time off because you didn't take that grassroots job. You left. No, I, I, I did take the grassroots job, and okay. I never really, I never fully answered your question in terms of why I left. Okay, um, I left because I was told that because I didn't want to take the job, but I accepted it because I was kind of pressured and saying I wouldn't receive another promotion if it came my way. I had to move to Oregon to the corporate headquarters, but I was told that after three years of kind of straightening out the grassroots situation. Um, that I'd be put back in the in Chicago and and going back to my pro responsibilities. Well, I was going into year five, 
And yeah. so I felt like I felt like they lied to me. Sure. Um, and so I because <laughs> I got into I got pushed into the job because uh, the, the scenario that we talked about earlier, um, the, the former grassroots director at Nike had sent some product to two kids at Oklahoma. Which, again, was standard procedure, but you sent it to the coach or you sent it to the kids parents. You didn't send it directly to the kids because that was the violation. Right. which is ridiculous. If I'm going to send it to you, I'm sending it to you. I'm just sending it to somebody else. I don't understand the difference in the violation, but whatever. Uh, that product was inter- the product was sent directly to the kids' dorm rooms and their compliance folks got a hold of it and made a big stink about it. And so they ended up basically terminating the guy who was uh, running the grassroots program. Gotcha. But he was doing his job. He just right. sent, like, sent it to the, to the kids' address versus sending it to the coach. Who was asking for the product? Because <laughs> that's how coaches recruit. They call you and say, "Hey, can you send my kid these new Jordans? Because it'll help me recruit him." Right. And you got a relation, two hundred million dollar relationship with the school, so yeah. you do what do you're it. supposed to do to help the school. Um, so anyway, I was going into year five. I was not real happy with the fact that they had not put me back and been um, been people of their word. And some of the decisions that I had made in terms of bringing in programs or trying to restructure deals was not met kindly. And it was just, it, I was frustrated and I was like, you know what? I probably should exit. Yep. And so that was, that was, that was ultimately how I ended up, why I ended up moving. Okay. Um, we've got a, a little over 30 minutes and I just want to get to kind of uh, the next level. Okay. You get back into the business at Adidas and you are involved in, trying to get players to certain universities and you're between programs and players. Yep. You know, as you said in the opening, you're the center of the cesspool. Everyone Ooh. needs you and Ooh. you have a great reputation. Yep. I mean, I had you in speed dial. I, mean, I knew that if I wanted some information, I was going to get good information from you. Right. you know? right. And you were a respectable guy in the industry with people that were not so respectable. Yeah. And you, you had remember? to be, you had to be able to kind of, dive into yeah i had to dip into the gutter yeah. without getting yeah. dirty yeah and so i want to know hey merle what's going on do i have a shot at this kid yeah it's gonna be a clean deal or not yeah and, and i, I would you know, and i was, and, and matt truthfully the reason i was able to have that kind of reputation is because i would always tell guys the truth I like listen and not waste your time and not put put a family or a kid in a har- in harm's way while doing it so if you I called know. and said ask me that question i said listen there's a lot of business around the kid it's probably not something you want to get involved in. There you go. That's all and I need. Leave it at that. And I move on. And I'm right. not. I'm not going to rat that kid out. That sucks. I don't like it. Right. But, you know, more and more it was happening, and and then you know I got I got fired, and that's from you. But it, it, you know it's it's dirty. You lose to programs you know that are doing things differently. You can't just go out to press and say, "Oh man, they're cheating." I'm not, and that's why I right. lost. Right. So you just take your medicine and sure. try to recruit a certain type of kid that comes right. from a background that you know that, you know, mm-hmm. parents have jobs. They, they value what you're offering in terms of right. education right. and you could try to beat the other teams with maybe a little lesser talent, maybe better character for lack of a better term. Sure. And, and so you get back into it and you're at Adidas. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the crap hits the fan. 
you facilitate or you're in touch with a player by the name of Brian Bowen, his father, his no, father. I, and so let me correct you, Matt. I don't know the kid. I've never spoken to the kid. I've never spoken to his father. I don't know this family at all. And that's why this whole thing stinks. So let me explain to you exactly what happened. I get back into the business. Um, again, I was the director of grassroots basketball for four plus years at Nike. I had 48, I believe, travel teams under my watch. I had 10 to 15 staff, you know, Nike staff under my watch. I, I managed a lot of people. I managed a $10 million budget. And $10 million budget. Yes. For my grassroots activities, for all of the camps, all of the grassroots programs is $10 million budget. And so I was tired of managing people. I I didn't want to do it anymore. It was, it was long days and long nights because you become the Dr. Phil of the business. Not only do I have parents and and, and kids calling, I've got college coaches calling. I've got agents calling. I got AAU programs calling. I've got my own family stuff to deal with. Like, it becomes a never-ending cycle, and it's 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 tiresome. And mm-hmm. I got burned out. And so when I left Nike, I took a year off, and then the opportunity to, to just join Adidas as a consultant came. And I was like, you know what? This will actually will be cool because I don't have to manage anybody. Right. All I have to do is do my job and go home to my family, right? So I thought it was a wonderful opportunity just to kind of get away from the, the extreme hustle and bustle. There's still some hustle and bustle, but not as much. It defines so, the role at Adidas in terms of a consultant. What did that so, again? Back to the back to the intel gathering, right? Mm-hmm. Understanding again, I, I had a, a wonderful network of people who I could call and get information. I could go see a, an up and coming player. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew the college, the, the 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 staffs at the Adidas sponsored schools, so it was a pretty easy transition for me because I already had established relationships in the space. So finding out who who was coming out of what program from a travel team perspective or what high school player was really good in a particular market. And maybe I knew his aunt or his uncle or maybe I knew his high school coach. It just gave me some ability to move a little bit easier because I was now, again, back in the intel gathering space and talent identification space. That's all I was doing. Right. Assessing talent, identifying players. And then I started overseeing Adidas Nations, which was like the Nike Skills Academies. Right. And so I get a call from. Uh, a young runner um, named Christian Dawkins. And he says, hey, man, I have a player um, who I'm really close to. Uh, his name is Brian Bowens. I've known the family. They're from my hometown. His aunt used to babysit me. Um, do you think uh, Adidas will help me with the kid? I don't know. I don't make those decisions for Adidas. All I can do is call and send your request in to those that make those decisions. I'm not in a, I'm in, I'm a consultant. I don't handle budget. I don't handle checks. I don't, I, none of that is in my purview, right? Um, I, I do pass that information on to the higher hierarchy at Adidas. They come back to me and say they're going to call Louisville, see if 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 that uh, that works for them. Do they want our help? I said sure, yes. They say yes. I get a call back from those that I work for and say, hey, we need you to submit an invoice. And I said, okay, why am I submitting an invoice? I said, well, we normally do this through the travel teams. To keep it clean, to keep the kid from NCAA violations, we'll do it through the travel team. They'll send the money to to, to Christian Dawkins, who's the um, business manager, and that way the kid never touches any money and no no problem. Okay. I do that. I send the invoice, and the next thing I know, I have the feds at my door. (sighs) For a kid that I don't know and never had a relationship or contact with, doing my job. Doing what you're told by the Adidas executives. Yes. 
September 26, 2017. 2017, yes. That day will be like September 11th in some people's minds. It will be September 26, 2017 in your mind, in your heart. There was a knock at your door. Tell us about that day. Yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was early morning, man. My, my wife was getting up for work and... She said, there's somebody knocking at the door. So I had somebody knocking at the door at 545, 6 o'clock in the morning. That's kind of wild. So I get out to bed and go downstairs in my T-shirt and drawers. And guys, it's, it's they surround. I, when I open the door, I see guys running across my front yard. And I can see them as I'm going to the door. I see guys running through the backyard. Well, they surrounded my house. And it was about 17 to 20 federal agents with their guns drawn uh, around my house. What, what, where were you living at the time? In Greenville, in Greer, back in South Carolina. Because once I left um, Nike, I moved from Oregon back to South Carolina. And the guy says, are you Morocco? And I said, yeah, I am. He said, you're under arrest. And I said, for what? He said, money laundering. And I said, excuse me? And he said, money laundering. And I said, laundering money from who? What are you talking about? And so he went through this whole money laundering thing about how I took money from Adidas. And wait a minute, I said, I took money from Adidas that they sent me on a wire from Germany. What are you talking about? Like, it, it was really confusing. And so it was strange. But then I kind of got to the, the, the gist of it, man. They were trying to make a case. They had a, uh, a, an informant that thought he had some information, didn't understand how the basketball space worked. And then when you realize that these young prosecutors make their their names off of bringing cases yep. um then you kind of get caught into this okay i'm i'm okay with this because the truth will come out and i'll get to show like i didn't defraud anybody i didn't take any money from anybody let's put the coaches on the stand let's put the ad's on the stand let's put the adidas hierarchy on the stand and none of that was allowed in the court and so they get to create a narrative that that i'm a criminal because none of the evidence that was beneficial to me or the defendants. Um, and mind you, nine of the 10 guys that were charged were black. And all of the white guys who were supposed to be involved because they had money and power and schools backing them, um, they get to, you know, walk free. You're talking about mainly the coaches, right? Yes. Are you comfortable? I know you. It, it's, I mean, you could Google it and see names. You know, you're talking about, um, you know, Sean Miller, Rick Bettina, Will Wade, Bill Self, mm-hmm. those names. Yep. And, and all of those gentlemen, except I think Will Wade, are, are coaching right now. All probably making over a million dollars a year. Yeah. At least. Yep. How does that make you feel? Uh, it certainly helps me realize that I'm a black man in America. Um, it helps me realize that the justice system works for those who have money and power and influence, and it doesn't work for those who, you know, who really want to speak true. Uh, it, it does not, it does not lend itself to, to folks of color for the most part. Um, this is, this is an interesting place that we live in. And I know people have a lot of American pride and this is the best country in the world. And, you know, and, and. Listen, I'm 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 not anti-American by any stretch of the imagination, but right is right, truth is truth, and fair is fair. And this this country has not lent itself to truth in a lot of instances, um, nor fairness, uh, nor justice. And so it 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 angers me that that the truth was not allowed in the place, the very place that is supposed to matter the most, which is the court of law. Tell us, uh, you know, a little 
deeper dive when we've got about uh, 20 minutes left. Sure. What wasn't allowed in court? Again, just to be clear, and why? What was the justification for not allowing it in court? I'm not really sure I can give you the justification uh, as to why it was not allowed in the court. I can just tell you what, you know, some of the things that were not allowed. And as I, as I kind of said to you earlier, there are presidents, the ADs, and the college coaches. We, we tried to subpoena and have them testify. Um, they did not allow the coaches, nor the ADs, nor the presidents of these universities to testify. What they did was they put their compliance people on the stand who have no idea about anything that goes on in this business. <laughs> we had the judge, uh, to, we, we weren't allowed to put the FBI um, agents on the stand. Come to find out that FBI agent was dirty himself, ended up getting indicted and having a three-month prison sentence. They tra- changed, his, changed his, um, his conviction from a felony to a misdemeanor. Uh, I mean, there's so many, there's so many things in this, in this case that text messages I have. And if you read the book, I have actual text messages and wiretap phone calls from the university of Kansas saying, Hey, whatever we got to do to get him here for, and they're talking about Zion because they knew I had a relationship with Zion Williamson, who is a all American high school player from South Carolina who played Duke for a year. Yeah. Went on. He's an NBA. He's an NBA All Star, right? And so, um, I have a recorded message, <laughs> recorded conversation uh, from their associate head coach, and it says, "Hey, man, what what do we have to do to get him here? We'll do whatever we got to do uh, to get him here for eight months." Now they're telling me this on the phone, and they say in that conversation, "Hey, we'll we'll just tell uh, your boss at, at at Adidas to put some money into the travel team." Now this is on wiretap. Not allowed. Not allowed into the courtroom. Why? Why? What was? How? How did they Again, say? Again, man, you have to ask legal, legal, legal eagles. Why? I don't know. I'm just telling you, this whole court case was a sham. Now, your dad is a lawyer and a judge, or was a judge. Yes. So you, I'm assuming, were getting good advice did he assist in this process or did you have outside counsel who yeah he was he was very much involved and very as helpful as he could be and he basically said to me um merle they're fucking you and excuse my language he said that but they're they're and i shouldn't have said that i'm sorry i know we're live oh, it's okay no no listen this is a podcast you say whatever okay. he's, yeah. he's he said they're fucking you and he said listen i've never seen a case where you couldn't put the folks on the stand, you say I took something from somebody unbeknownst to them and I can't put them on the stand. Like I, I've never, he's, he was frustrated because he said, I've, these guys come up with all this federal mess that says you can't put people on the stand and then you lie to the jury and say we had equal access to all the judge lied to the jury and said we had equal access to all witnesses when you just told us we couldn't put the, the coaches or the FBI on the stand. So how do we have equal access? Like it's, It was a sham. But again, when you have corporate entities with a lot of money and a lot of influence and a lot of power, the truth doesn't matter. And this was uh, taking place in New York City? Yes. And you went to jail? I did. How long? Five and a half months. I can only imagine the, uh, the anger, the despair, uh, the helplessness. Yeah. Uh, You know, when they sentenced you to prison and you actually had to show up. What was that like? Well, how'd you feel? 
I mean, it's it's certainly again, man. It's it's a constant reminder of me being a black man in this country. And and when you get there and, and you start seeing guys who are are in similar situations, who've been railroaded or who've been you know accused of certain things that they did didn't do and weren't allowed to 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 defend themselves in the place where it should have mattered the most. It's it's certainly frustrating. Um, and certainly it's not a, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, I went in with the mindset that I was going to have to figure out how to survive and, 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 and come out, up, you know, and, and restart my life in some capacity because you, they, they've taken my livelihood away for something that I didn't do. Um, I've become toxic. I can't, you know, college coaches can't touch me. They can't speak to me because it puts them in harm's way. And I'm not, this is a self-preservation type business, right? And so I, I'm not angry at that. I mean, I certainly understand. I, I'm, I'm disappointed that so many guys that I did so many things for in the space didn't stand up and say, "Hey, man, that's not what happened. That, that that that's not what that's not what happened." Like I literally got charged with bribery because I got invited to a meeting and was told I'd be paid I'd be paid a consulting fee, and I took my consulting fee for showing up. And they said it was a bribe, and I said, "I, I don't understand how that works." How? And I have another recorded conversation where I'm telling the FBI agent, hey, man, you're not paying any of my coaches. These are my friends. These guys will show up at a meeting because I asked them to. But again, not not allowed into the court. This podcast is called the Rebound Podcast, and it's all about, uh, I like to say, what's your rebound? So you (laughs) have this very nice career. And high profile, well respected, you get in this crossfire with the NCAA, the 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 New York DA, um, federal prosecutors. You go to jail for something. Oh, by the way, that now is basically legal with the NIL, right? Right. Right. I mean, how does Merle code? How do you rebound? How do you come back from? that and and gain some peace some traction livelihood it's a good question man um i don't know i mean i'm still trying to figure that out um <clears throat> you know again i've been blessed and fortunate to have some really good relationships with people as yourself um and larry shyatt who was one of my favorite people on earth larry was my assistant coach in college, um, became the head coach at Clemson in Wyoming. I uh, was with the Dallas Mavericks for a number of years and is now retired. Um, but one of my favorite people on earth. Um, and, and so I, I've, I've been blessed and fortunate to have guys like Larry and yourself in my corner. Um, just from a relationship standpoint to help, help me kind of navigate what, what the opportunities could potentially be for what's next. I don't, I really don't know. And I'm, I'm going to figure it out. Um, I'm going to try to be a faithful servant of the man upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that this happened for a reason. And I know it's to, to help these young men and young women find truth and, and able to earn dollars for themselves, which is starting to happen. Um, I still think it's a sham in terms of name, image, and likeness. Uh, I still think it's a form of, of slavery and indentured servitude when I have to ask somebody, and, and forgive me, but I have to ask some white guy, at some school, can I use my name or can I use my, what I look like right. to, to earn monies for myself? Can I use my abilities? Can right. I please, sir? Right. It's bull, it's bullshit. Um, and so 
I, I don't really know. Again, I've got some some irons in the fire, man, and and uh, <clears throat> we'll see kind of where it goes. So, were you when did you get out of prison? July twenty seventh. July twenty seventh of twenty twenty two. Yes. And what have you been doing since then? What's your day to day like? Day to day is just again reaching out to people, um, doing doing podcasts as as, as this, um, helping promote the book as much as I can. Um, again, talking to guys in my circle about opportunities that are you know that are that are upcoming, and prayerfully, man, something something will happen. Uh, someone will see some value in in something that I've done, said um, a relationship, and and hopefully I can kind of get back on track from a career perspective. What's it done to your family? In a really positive way. I mean, my, my wife and I have, have always been really, really close and she's, she's my best friend, but it brought us closer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes when you're, you know, when you're away and, you know, you, you, you go through things with somebody, you don't really realize how much you value them until they're not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think from a family perspective, man, I think it brought us a lot closer together. I think, you know, we've, we've buckled down and, you know, it hasn't been easy. Um, but fortunately, you know, we're, we're not, we're not in a place where we're worried about eating tomorrow, but you know, we're still, we're not in the place that we were before all this happened. Either. So, um, but, but it's definitely been a, a strain on my mother and father emotionally, because I know it's hard to watch your child go through something like that. Um, it's been a strain on my wife emotionally, um, but it's brought us closer together. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful that it opened my eyes to those who are in my in my circle who have stood by me through this and who know the truth. You know, as a player, you you, you always dream, right? You dream about hitting game-winning shots. You dream about playing D1. You dream about winning a championship. What do you dream about now that could maybe hopefully materialize in your mind saying, you know what, I think I could fit here and add value if only somebody <laughs> could um, open that door for me? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I certainly would love to you know, have an opportunity at the NBA level because college is out, right? Because now, now I'm a convicted felon, so I could never work in the college space. Um. But I, I certainly would have, you know, with somebody that, that understands my situation or really knows the truth, um, I would hopeful, I'd be hopeful that somebody at the NBA level would, would, would find some value in something that I brought to the table. Um, <clears throat> someone internationally um, at the pro level would see some value in terms of what I bring to the table from, again, having some experiences in, in all aspects of the game, whether it be teaching or whether it be um, evaluation. I'd love to be around the game in some, some aspects, um, if, if at all possible. You know, mm-hmm. still, I still love the game. I just don't like the business of it. Yeah, um, and, that's and, beautiful. A friend of mine said uh, in the NBA, beautiful game, shitty business. Right, right. Right. So, so have, you, have you come across any people from your past, like a, Patino, Sean Miller, Bill Self. No, I'm not. And again, I don't. I don't even know Patino. I have no relationship with Patino. We've only said hello to each other, and that's why I said this whole case stinks because I don't know him either. No. I don't know the Bowen family. I don't know Patino. Again, the most I've ever done to that man is said hello. How you doing, Coach? Mm-hmm. 
So whatever business arrangements were made were made without me. I wasn't around for them. They were made above my pay grade. But again, that's, you know, Bill has a, has a job. He's got a family. I don't like the fact that none of these, none of these guys were forthright enough or, or, or man enough to say, Hey, this is what happened. And you know, mm-hmm. whatever, but that's not for me to deal with. They got to see the man upstairs for themselves one day. And so that'll, that'll be their time to deal with it for now. If I did come across them, there's nothing to be said. I mean, I, they didn't bring the court case against me. They just right. didn't tell the truth. Right. You know, they, they didn't have to tell the truth. They weren't forced to tell the truth. Yeah, they, they just stayed away from the opportunity to tell the truth. Right. Exactly. A couple last questions. Will you watch the NCAA tournament? No. With what you know, the NCAA is broken. How can it be fixed if you were the president of the NCAA or a head of a basketball committee? It needs to be dissolved. I mean, because here's the problem with it is it's, it's, it's a farce. And the NCAA makes 95 plus percent of their monies annually off of March Madness. They make a billion plus dollars off of three and a half, four weeks of basketball. Mm-hmm. And because football has become such a powerful entity, they don't get any of the football revenue. That's why there's all the input for those of your, your listeners who don't understand the business football. That's why football has all these ball games and basketball does not. The NCAA still controls the revenues from the basketball perspective because they've created this March madness, uh, iconic event. Well, football has said, Hey man, you go screw yourself. You're not, you're not taking any of our revenue. Right. And so it's become a corporate rush to see who can sponsor these big time bowl games. And so, Understanding the business of it, it needs to be dissolved, period. And these kids need to be in an open, fair, and free market where, hey, these coaches can change jobs. So can kids. So you think uh, they should still have college basketball, but it's just a different model where it's yes. like, like maybe an NBA draft. Yes. We could go on and on. Um, how do people, if they want you to get on a podcast, speak in an event, um, just reach out to you? Merle, how do they do that? So a couple of ways um, I can be reached through my publisher, my um, sorry, my literary agent, uh, Matt Carlini, um, C-A-R-L-I-N-I. And his email is Carlini, C-A-R-L-I-N-I at Javelin, D-C, D as in David, uh, dot com. Or uh, the, the guys who I have to give a lot of credit to for helping me put the book in place, um, Eric Elston. His email is eric at core, C-O-R-E, managementgroup.com. Those are the two ways guys can, can, can get a hold of me to do any kind of podcast or speaking engagement. Merle, uh, I appreciate you, man. I appreciate uh, you sharing. I'm sorry you went through what you went through. I hope you continue to rebound. Uh, it's a process. It doesn't yes. happen fast. Sure. I've been through something but not as bad i mean but it's all relative and you know it's all about how do you deal with adversity setbacks failure and how do you rebound and because uh, there's a lot of people out there that go through a lot of stuff and um when they hear your story hopefully it'll inspire them to keep moving forward as you have done in your journey so uh merle thank you very much for thank you for having me i appreciate the time yeah man thank you Take care. Leadership is a learned behavior. You're a leader, whether you're a parent, a coach, a business owner, or a friend. We all lead in some way, shape, or form. 
Thanks for listening. I welcome any and all feedback. You can reach me at dartycoaching.com.